Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. I was thinking about how we can help each other with that. Um, as we, you know, we come together on a Sunday morning, we hear God's word preached. How can we help each other to keep thinking about that as we go into the week? Um, I don't know, really. Um, but one idea that I've had um, is I've, I've written some questions um, that will come out in an email um, the middle of the day today. I might put them in the WhatsApp group uh, just to help us to be thinking about what we've heard from God's word, to be asking, is you know, what I'm saying to you, is that what the Bible's saying? And then thinking about what that might mean as we put it into practice in our lives. And we can talk about that with, with one another. So look out for that coming on. Uh, but let's pray together, shall we, as we consider this portion of God's word before us. Our God in heaven, we praise you that your word is living and active, as we've just sung, uh, full of your good promise, sure and, and steadfast for us. We pray that as we look at this, this passage of the Bible now, that you would help us, that you'd help us to engage with our, with our minds and with our hearts as we hear your word. Would we hear you speaking to us? And as you speak to us, would you bring to us your life? Because we ask it in the name of your dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, what is it that you need? Um, answer yourself that question. You don't need to shout it out, but say it. No, tell yourself, what do you need? Now, this week I was walking my boys to school, and one of them said, um, I wish that there were bears in the pits, in Paxton Pits that we have here. I wish there were bears. So this was a great opportunity for a life lesson uh, for me to teach my boys um, to tell them that that would be a terrible thing if there were bears in the pits. We would never go there. It would be too dangerous. Life lesson, never trust a bear. And that's a good lesson. Uh, you should always avoid making contact with a bear in the wild. It will only do you harm. Now, bears are wonderful things, aren't they? Um, I guess, wonderful animals. Um, and there might be something quite exciting to know that there are bears in the pits. Um, but we must treat them with great suspicion and avoid them at all costs. I wonder if we can lean that way in the way that we think about the Lord God. Now, there might be times, I guess, when we, uh, when, when we wish that God were bigger in our lives, that we were kind of more attached, more taken up. Maybe we wish there were times when we would just pray all the time and we would always be praising and we'd always be talking about him. And that this, everything that we have in life, everything we do just makes sense because of him. And we wish we had more of that. But we don't, and we struggle with it. And life just comes in and it swallows up our awareness of the Lord. And it could be, if we dare to admit it, that that swallowing up has, can be a bit of a relief at times. A bit like having bears in the pits. We say, God is wonderful, but best kept at arm's length. We have a strategy of minimal contact. Now, when I was a teenager, I remember my, my school rugby coach saying to me, taking me to one side, saying, Richard, he didn't quite say that, he said something else. He said, you don't want to take this God stuff too seriously. Now, don't overdo it. Now, what is it that might hold us back from the Lord? Now, I, I wonder, and there could be lots of things, but I, I wonder whether one of the things that holds us back is that, that there's just something inside us that puts a huge question mark over God's attitude toward us. We are, I guess, 
are kind of very uncertain about the Lord's sweetness towards us. Now, we, we think about God's great love for us. We've done it this morning. Um, but in reality, we treat God's love for us as a kind of formal, cold, forced thing. And, and probably it's much more for someone else than it is for me. What do you need? Well, we come to Genesis 16 and this passage um, conveniently breaks up into two halves. We're going to look at it um, in two halves, these events here. We're going to look at what a mess and what a saviour. First of all, the first six verses, what a mess. If you have a Bible, look with me as verse 1 brings us into this episode and says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This is a great problem if we've read so far in the book of Genesis. Uh, we learned about it first and we were introduced to Sarai at the end of chapter 11. And this problem is just it's lurking in the background. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord promised Abram he would have many descendants. In Genesis 15, we saw it last time that Abram comes off the back of that great victory in chapter 14. And he's in anguish and he says to the Lord, what can you do for me because I don't have an heir? And the Lord says to him in chapter 15, come on, Abram. Come and look at the stars. Count them if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And the Lord formalized his commitment with that covenant ceremony we saw. But the clock ticks. Tick, tick, tick. And and we learn in verse 3 that they've been in the land of Canaan for 10 years and there are still no children. This great promise that hangs over Abram, it it can look very ominous. The promise is that the whole world is going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants. But there is no child. In chapter 16, the camera turns its focus onto Sarai. See, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. In the ancient world, that kind of surrogacy wasn't uncommon. The ancient law codes speak about it. And in the ancient world, for a woman to be without children, it was the worst thing imaginable. For a woman to be without a child, she was a failure. The gods were against her. Her life was meaningless. Now, at the beginning of Genesis 16, the great kind of covenant promises look like they're in jeopardy. Abraham has no heir. The promise about his family being a blessing to the world looks like it's hollow. But but I don't think that is what Sarai is concerned about. Look, Look closely at what she says. She says, the Lord has kept me from having children. She's not just making an observation here. The first words we hear her speak are a complaint. And she's crying out. She's saying, look, it's the Lord's fault. He has done me no good. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And she's urgent with Abram. It's hard to get across quite the intensity of what she says, but she is begging him. She's saying, you must go and do this. Now, why? What's her reason? Well, she tells us. Perhaps I can build a family through her. But literally what she says is, perhaps I can be built through her. No mention of the promise. No mention of Abram's descendants. In Sarai's world, she is lost and she's growing desperate. 
Now, whatever the customs in the ancient world, the narrator does not approve of what Sarai does. Repeatedly, we are told she is Abram's wife, and it's jarring to hear how she uses Hagar. But, but what Sarai thinks she needs most in all the world is children. Without them, she will not be built, and if she's not built, then she will remain a ruin. The clock ticks, and she grows desperate. She must have children, and God hasn't helped her. So she takes matters into her own hands. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Hagar, a slave, living away from her homeland. And she becomes a tool in the desperation of her mistress. But then Hagar, she wins the jackpot here. You remember poor old Charlie Bucket in Roald Dahl's um, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory? Poor old Charlie Bucket is miserable. His life is miserable. He's desperately poor. Uh, He's starving. Each day he walks past the chocolate factory and he dreams of what lies beyond, but it's all beyond him. Then the golden tickets come out. Poor old Charlie Bucket. He hopes against hope that his annual chocolate bar will yield him a golden ticket. He just wants to get the golden ticket, the ticket that will transform all of his fortunes. He dreams about it. He imagines it, but he's still eating watered-down cabbage soup and freezing in the winter snow. But, of course, he gets his ticket Charlie Bucket gets his ticket and, the, uh, and his whole world is changed. That's kind of what happens to Hagar here. You, you can imagine the film trailer that comes out. Hagar, the slave who becomes a princess. She becomes preg- pregnant with Abram's child. This is her ticket out of slavery. Her status is immediately lifted, lifted even above that of her mistress. And they all live happily ever after. No. Not at all. It's a mess, isn't it? It's a huge mess. Hagar begins to despise her mistress. That that means she starts to think that her mistress is nothing as she thinks that she is everything. Verse 5, it says, Sarai said to Abram. Listen to what Sarai says. It's kind of bonkers, really, what she says, isn't it? Given what has just happened, Sarai says to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering I put my slave into your arms. Now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between me and you. Bitterness, isn't it? Her plan succeeded and failed in the same moment. And now she's self-righteous enough to claim that she is in the right. So verse 6 says, Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. Uh, The word ill-treated here is used a couple of ways in the Bible. Uh, One of the ways it's used is to to describe oppression, to oppress, including, my dictionary tells me, to humiliate a woman by enforced marriage. Uh, the, The other way it's used is to describe doing violence, and again, my dictionary tells me to include the rape of a woman. In effect, Sarai has done those things to Hagar. See, what Hagar thought was her golden ticket quickly crumbled in her hand. She can't hold on to it and she flees. She runs away. You see just the mess of this. It's horrible, isn't it? The, the, the abused becomes the abuser. Uh, uh, and then the cycle goes on and on, doesn't it? Back and forth. Well, where's Abram in all of this? Where is he? Good question. Now, the years have passed. Maybe the promises are beginning to fade and He's a bit pathetic, isn't he? Sarai desperately begs him to take Hagar, so he just does what she says. 
Verse 2 says, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Literally, he listened to her voice. The last time we heard that phrase was in Genesis chapter 3. Abram is acting like his father, Adam. Passive. Standing back. Doesn't seem to care. Verse 6, he is callous. Your slave, he says, you go and do what you like with her. No concern for the vulnerable. No, his eyes are shut to the abuse in his own household. It's a mess. Why are we told all this? Now, Genesis 16 does very little to kind of advance the covenant promises of God as we see them unraveled in Genesis. Now, what's the point of this? Uh, I think there are two reasons why we have this passage. The first one is that these are people like us. Sarai, there, she's convinced there's one thing she needed. She must have children and desperate. She, she, she can't get what she thinks she needs. She pushes God to one side and then takes matters into her own hands. We should pause on that. Now, what do we do when we don't get what we think we need? Now, what, what might it be that we think we need? We can make a list, couldn't we? A better health, an answer, direction for the future, financial stability, job satisfaction, relationship resolution. We can, we can list all these things, all good things. When we don't get them, how do we react? Now Sarah's heart hardened to the Lord. Does that happen to us? We stop praying, we, we stop praising Sarah tried to take matters into her own hands, regardless of how it affected others. Does that happen to us? No, we make plans, we put the blinkers on, and our concerns shrink down just to ourselves, and we can't see the impact on other people because we get so desperate. And maybe, maybe the question we need to ask is, what do I really need? And then we have Hagar. She can't hold the prize. For a brief moment, she becomes top lady. <clears throat> she's, she's princess for a day. But it so quickly crumbles, so she just runs. She's not going anywhere. She's just getting away. She's just escaping. Now, what happens for us when we don't get what we want? Or, or, or when we get what we want and it doesn't stick? And what we, what we thought we needed, it, it just turns to dust in our hands. Where's our escape from the disappointments in life? Maybe we're not really thinking about where we're going, but like Hagar, we are just running. And maybe, maybe we need to ask, what is it that I really need? What a mess, verses 1 to 6. And verses 7 to 16, what a saviour. And you know what happens when a, a raw egg has encounter with heat. You throw a hot egg, not a hot egg, a raw egg, into a hot frying pan. And immediately, and it is permanently changed by the encounter. In the second half of Genesis 16, Hagar has such a transforming encounter. And, and I think we'll see it's not just transforming for her, but it's also transforming for Sarai and for Abram. Uh, but by verse 7, Hagar has gone a good distance. She's been traveling, she's pregnant, and maybe she's been on the road for about a week, and, and she is 
well, well, she's nowhere, isn't she? She's in the middle of nowhere beside a spring of water. One thing is in her mind. She wants to get away from her suffering. <clears throat> How do you think the Lord deals with somebody like that? Now, when somebody is lost. Well, when, when someone's not just lost, but someone has lost in life. And, and they're falling apart. What, what do you think the Lord, is his approach to that kind of situation. <clears throat> Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord, he's not popping out to the shops and he happens to bump into her. The angel of the Lord found her because he was looking for her. He was searching. He was looking and he found her and he speaks in verse 8 and says, Hagar. He knows her name. We've got to be asking, what is God like? As we get this far in Genesis, we, we could say so much about what God is like. We could speak about his great power in creation, his goodness in creation. We could speak about his justice and his love and his mercy and his, his promises and his, his plans. And when we get to chapter 16, we are shown something about his heart. The angel of the Lord comes, he gently engages with Hagar. He asks her questions, he knows the answers, but he's just drawing her out. Where have you come from? And where are you going? He's gently bringing out her suffering. And notice that as she answers, she only talks about where she's come from. She's not going anywhere. So he says in verse 9, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Now, given how Sarai has treated Hagar, the angel of the Lord says, go back. What's Hagar going to do with that kind of instruction? Everything about her is intent on getting away. And the angel of the Lord says, go back. What will she do? Well, the instruction is followed by a promise in verse 10. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This, this isn't the, the covenant promise made to Abram. This is just, it's just an overflow of the Lord's goodness and kindness to Hagar. It is, in kind of Hagar's cultural language, this was immensely precious. This, this promise is saying, Hagar, you are not a surrogate like Sarai intended for you. You are a mother and a wife and your descendants, they will be vast. And the angel of the Lord emphasizes the certainty of it. I will absolutely do this for you. It's not going to happen by chance, but I am going to personally commit myself to ensure that this is your outcome. Because the message is, I am for you. And the promise of blessing is explained in verse 11. You're now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. See, why does the angel of the Lord search and find Hagar? Why does he know her by name? Now, why does this Hagar receive this promise of blessing? Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. The, the, the misery of Hagar, she's alone in the wilderness thinking that there's no one who cares. Think, thinking that, that she's just lost. She, she is lost and she has lost. But the Lord hears her misery. 
Because that is what God is like. But we have nothing here to suggest that Hagar calls on the Lord. She's not praying, she is not seeking, she is being sought. The Lord hears her misery and he comes to meet her. You know, this, this little incident we have here, it foreshadows a, a major Bible event. A few hundred years down the track, the, the descendants of Abraham, they will be in Egypt and they will be oppressed. And when they are oppressed in Egypt, we will find in Exodus 3 that the Lord hears their misery and comes to meet them. You see, what, what Sarai does to a child of Egypt, later on the Egyptians will do to Sarai's children. And both times, the Lord will hear the misery. Both times. The compassion of the Lord will yearn out and he will come to meet the afflicted in their misery because that is what the Lord is like. See, Genesis 16, it does very little to advance the covenant purposes of God. But, but the point of it are twofold. The first reason we have it is because these are people like us. The second reason is to give us a unique insight into the character of God. There's something new happens in Genesis 16. This is the first time we meet the angel of the Lord. God, God could have spoken to Hagar in a, a dream or a vision or just with words. But he uses this way of communication, the angel of the Lord. And when we meet this character, and he will come up again, we see that the angel of the Lord, at times he speaks from God, at other times he speaks as God. And the kind of overwhelming impression that this encounter leaves, what we see in verse 13. The overwhelming impression in verse 13 is that God himself has been seen. See, that this, this angel it is not so much an angel from God, not so much a representative, but a representation. That God, in a, in a, in a kind of way, God is appearing. And the, the encounter with the angel of the Lord builds up this this kind of impact. See, on, on, on one hand, on one hand, as um, Malky Zedek said in chapter 14, on one hand, God is most high. We see that in Genesis. God is he's far above. God is, is, is inaccessible. He's unseeable. And the angel of the Lord speaks about God. And then on the other hand, the most high is coming near. He's condescending to the frailties of people. He's talking, he's taking this way in which he can be seen and spoken with. One writer describes the purpose like this. He says, the angel of the Lord encounters show us the desire of God to approach closely to his people. To assure them in the most manifest way of his interest in and his presence with them. Because that is what God is like. Imagine that you're in London, uh, on, on busy, crowded streets, pre-COVID of course. And there you are, busy, crowded streets, and the, the traffic has been, has been shut off because the Queen is going to pass. And there you are in the crowds and you're waiting, um, and the Queen's guards begin to come by, some of them on horses, some of them just marching, but in all their fine finery, and then the queen's carriage comes, you see it in the distance, pulled by eight beautiful white horses. 
And, uh, and as the ca- carriage comes along, the crowds, they're, they're waving, they're cheering, everyone's got their phones out taking photos. And, and the carriage, it comes by and then it stops. The, the footman leaps to the door and he opens it and the queen herself gets out. And she walks toward the crowd, right to the spot where you are. And then she holds out her hand to you and she speaks your name and she invites you to be with her. That would be pretty weird, wouldn't it? It would be pretty weird. But, but the angel of the Lord encounter is showing that God Most High, who is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, I, I, I wish we could find words to, to express how inexpressibly brilliant God is, how great he is. He's, he's beyond and he's other and he's the most of all the mostnesses we could possibly... Words can't express what God is like. But the angel of the Lord encounter shows us his desire, his yearning. Is to come close. His heart is drawn out towards the misery of this lost slave girl as he meets with her. And how does she respond? Verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. The footnote says that means well of the living one who sees me. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, you need to go back. Verse 15, Hagar has gone back. What changes? She is running. All she is set on is getting away. She wants to get away. She's just going. She is fleeing, but then she returns. Why does she return? The answer is this encounter. And and, and see what Hagar says makes all the difference to her. All the difference is not the promise of a son. That's a wonderful promise made about the boy. That is a wonderful blessing put upon her. But that doesn't make the difference. What makes the difference is that she meets with God. And he hears about her misery. He's heard her misery. And she is seen by him. She's not just looked at. She's not just noticed, but he knows her. He really knows her. He knows her name. He knows where she is when she's lost. He knows her misery. He talks with her. He sees her. You see, Hagar comes into this encounter thinking that what she needed most was that status and security of being a princess. And then she leaves this encounter. As far as she knows, she leaves the encounter going back into the oppression of slavery. But what has changed is that her deepest need has been met. A need she didn't even realise that she had. What did she need? She needed to be seen by the Lord. And since she is seen by him. The language in verse 13 is quite baffling. Our our translation smoother over. But there's this great intensity as she tries to express that she has been seen. And since she is seen by the Lord, she has all that she needs. Ishmael. God hears. God hears your misery. That is wonderfully true for Hagar. There's not a neat and tidy kind of conclusion to this episode. In verse 12, we learn that Ishmael is going to be a handful And the following history of his descendants will bear it all out. And Hagar goes back not to return to happy families ever after. But she returns. 
Because the Lord who hears her misery, the Lord who sees her, he told her and she trusts him. That's why she does what he says. Ishmael is true for Hagar. So she goes back to the family home. What does Sarai do? And what does Sarai do? At the end, she does nothing. We don't hear about Sarai at the end of the chapter. Why is that? I don't know, but but she doesn't do anything. She doesn't stop Hagar returning. In fact, when, when the Lord says to Hagar, go back to your mistress and submit to her, there is a great mercy to Sarai in that. Now, Sarai's plan, it doesn't come off. She was wrong to do what she did, and in the end, she doesn't get what she wanted. Hagar is not a surrogate. She is the wife of Abram. Ishmael is never counted as a son of Sarai, but Hagar comes back to her mistress and submits to her. Sarai's misery was misdirected, but Ishmael is true for her, isn't it? The Lord hears her misery. And, And as we read on, we'll see more of this in the coming chapters. What about Abram? He is pretty pathetic, isn't he, at the start? He just steps back and turns a blind eye. But then in verse 15, it says, Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son. Abram named the boy with the name that the Lord had given to Hagar. Can you imagine the conversation when Hagar came back? She comes back, Hagar, why are you here? Because I met with the Lord. You met with the Lord. What happened? What did he say? He said, my son should be called Ishmael because the Lord has heard my misery. And Abraham accepts that. He, 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 he owns it, doesn't he? Because he names the boy. And, and you think for Abraham, as he has that, that lurking suspicion that all the promises of God are just falling apart and hollow. But the covenant could never be in real jeopardy, despite this long, long wait that Abraham has to have. Because this covenant comes from the tender graces of the God who hears the misery of his people and comes to meet them. Because Ishmael is true for Abraham. But what about us? Ishmael, God hears your misery. Ishmael is true for you. No, Sarai was so desperate to get the things she thought she most needed. Hagar was disappointed because she couldn't hold the things she thought she most needed. But what? What was it that she most needed? Now, what about us? Do we have that, that question mark that hangs over God's attitude towards us? Have we have, do, do we have that kind of uncertainty about God's sweetness towards us. Genesis 16 just just gently reorientates what we think we need. You see, like Hagar, what we need more than anything else in all the world, we need a God who hears our misery. And we need a God who sees us. We, We need a God who knows where we are when we are lost and the We need a God who comes to find us. We need a God who speaks with us. We need a God who calls us by name. We need a God who doesn't stay away. We need a God who desires to be with us. And Genesis 16 shows us that there is such a God. That this is what he's like. 
And the Bible continues to bear that out. Uh, Isaiah 57 could be a commentary on this when the prophet writes, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We can, we can trace this tenderness of God through all the pages of history. We, we can trace this tenderness right through to the point of the coming of his tenderness. A coming not as the angel of the Lord, but when God who is most high, who is the high and the exalted one, when he came down. When he came right down into the heart of humanity. When he came as the good shepherd to seek and to save the lost. When he came as a good shepherd who calls his sheep by name. When he came as the good shepherd who lays down his life for us. In the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the exact representation of the condescending compassion of God. He, he is the exact representation of God himself coming in tender urgency towards us in our lostness. Now, is that how you think about God? Do you think of him straining in tender compassion towards you? Do you think about him as the one who listens to your misery? The one who sees all that you are and yearns to be with you? Is that how you see God or, or, is, it, or is it more that your spiritual step becomes heavy and sluggish? Sluggish because, if you're honest, you think you live under the frown of heaven. I wonder how often we are like Sarai, thinking that God is not for us, so we must go it alone. And we sometimes do that deliberately, but other times we just, we just slip into that way of, of getting on. We, we, we manage our life and God just gets pushed to the background. He's not really for us. Like, like bears in the pits, we wouldn't really want to go there. So, so we sort out life as best we can and, and slowly our hearts begin to harden and our spirits begin to sag. Well, Genesis 16 speaks to us in this. What do you need? And Genesis 16 answers, what you need most is God. Now, when Genesis 16 reaches its fulfillment, reaches its fulfillment in the manger of Bethlehem and the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb and today the risen Lord Jesus reigning over all, we have in Jesus God for us. And he hears you, hears you in your misery. Now, even before you cry out to him, and, and he searches for you long before you search for him, and he finds you, he finds you and you don't even realise how lost you are. And he speaks your name, and he sees you. He sees you. That, would, that thought would, that it would melt our hearts and crush all of our stubbornness and uh, and the light, hey God, because of it, we'd be so willing to obey all of his commands simply because he commands. Is that how you see God? Oh, that our eyes would be, the eyes of our hearts would be opened and, and we would see that the Most High has stooped down, that the Most High has yearned in compassion towards you. He came for you. He would make his home with you unless you shut him out. 
Why would anyone shut him out? Why would we do that? Why would we refuse one who loves so well? And Jesus promised, I will not leave you. He said, I will come to you and by my spirit I will live in you. He can't leave us alone, so don't refuse him. Why would we want to refuse one who loves so well? He comes, he comes to be with all who would receive him. To live with us. And to draw us through our life in this earth. Right up into, into the time when he draws us into his bosom in eternity. So that we might always be with him. Because that's what he's like.